the first groups of people that Dante meets are figures that don't really know what life's about. Um, you know, they're, they're struggling, they're looking for leaders, they're looking for a kind of messiah, um, or alternative, they're looking for a kind of fear, because fear can give life shape and meaning. And, you know, we live in a time that's full of fears, um, and they may be grounded um, to some degree. I'm not denying there aren't real things to fear, but nonetheless, I think the reason why they become so they dominate the narrative is because they 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 seem to give a kind of negative form of meaning. Um, you know, whereas in the purgatory, what's been learned is that fear actually contains the seeds of hope. Yeah. Um, and so whilst people in purgatory are suffering too, um, they know that this suffering is much more like the crises of developmental psychology. And um, that if they can bear them, if they can hold them, stay with them, they're actually breakdowns that are leading to a breakthrough. And so in purgatory, there is the sense of expansion. Um, it's not a closed data set, you know, like the infernal state of mind. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Balash Kegel. I'm the host of the iScientist podcast where we explore artificial intelligence, science, and the scientists behind the science. So today is my great, great pleasure to host uh, Mark Vernon. Mark is a philosopher, a writer, a theologian, and a psychotherapist. He even has a physics degree, right? So hi, hi, Mark, how are you today? Hi there, hey, thanks very much for having me on. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it for several reasons. One of them is that you are my first guest who is not coming from the narrow AI tech community. And so this marks a little bit uh, my objective to open this podcast towards a bigger audience and towards a bigger uh, point of view of discussing AI. So I read two of your recent books. One of them is The Secret uh, History of Christianity uh, about Christianity and the uh, open bar field. And the second one is the more, your most recent book is Dante's Divine Comedy, a guide for the spiritual journey. And I would very much like to bring those into the discussions because they have great influence on my thinking. So the immediate reason why we decided to talk is that Mark had recently made 10 points on AI. And I found them super interesting and relevant. And then our common friend, uh, Karen Wong, also found it uh, that it would be interesting if we talked, so he connected, she connected us. Uh, so my goal is to, to string the discussion on those 10 points, which I noted. Uh, but before, I want to paint a, put a bigger frame around this discussion, because you have an uh, amazing skill set coming from psychology and theology and philosophy. And I think these are very, very relevant to the current discussion of, on AI. And it's a little bit, it's not very well known, especially not in the tech community, why those skills are relevant. So my first question to you would be, like, how did you end up accumulating this amazing skill set? So what was your journey? How did they uh, follow from each other? I mean, it's just happenstance, really. Um, I. I suppose if there were a common thread, I've always been interested in in the big questions. And, you know, so when I was 
younger and um, did the physics only at an undergraduate level, but did an undergraduate physics degree. It was always the bigger questions, cosmology or the quantum theoretical side, um, you know, rather than, I don't know, solid state physics that never particularly drew me. Um, so um, I um, but then sort of moved on to theology. Um, it might seem very different to many people, but again, it's still big questions. You know, cosmology is just called creation theology. Um, and um, so that would be a thread. And then ended, I ended up doing a philosophy PhD. But again, it was about Plato, you know, and Plato is also asking these big questions about who we are. Um, and even now working as a psychotherapist, um, it's typically working intimately with individual people, but it's still that sense of uh, what's life about um, that lies at some point behind psychotherapy. So yeah, I guess that would be a thread. So it's almost like you, you started from very far and then you arrived towards psychology yourself or people, right? So I see a well, little one, bit- one thing I, I, I took very much from um, Plato was that who you are is directly related to what you know. And so for the ancient philosophers, and actually I think for all philosophers up until fairly recently, maybe 150 years ago, working on yourself um, and developing your capacity to perceive the world, what you attend to, um, was very much part of the philosophical quest. Um, it's only really since the rise of modern science, which I, I take to be really quite recent, um, that this ideal of objectivity, where you can almost extract out the person doing the science um, has become very dominant. Um, I think it's profoundly mistaken um, because, uh, you know, all science, as it were, comes through the human individual or a group of human individuals. Um, and so asking ourselves who we are, how we're attending to the world, the ways that our way of life shapes what we do and don't perceive um, must be fundamental, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it's not only a mistake from a, like, say, epistemological point of view, but it, it's, I, I, as a scientist, found it really hard on myself, on my psychology, that I have to almost detach myself from the subject I'm studying, whereas, of course, I'm the most interested in that subject. So it, it leads, I call it lived dualism. Like you have the scientific world that you study from outside in the lab and then you go home and you live your life and you hug your kids, right? And, and, and well, yeah. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you'll know that, you know, even as an undergraduate, um, in a way, an undergraduate degree, you learn lots of things and you develop certain skills if you're lucky. Um, you know, with physics, it's a lot to do with mathematics. Um, but also, um, you're testing yourself could you become a physicist? And that's almost like an initiation, right? Can you enter this profession? Um, have you got the personality or can you form your personality to fit in the world of physics? And um, I, I couldn't, um, I mean, not, I didn't, it wasn't, I was sort of finding the physics world wanting, it's just that I, I couldn't manage to do it. But in retrospect, I can see that, um, you know, becoming a scientist is to become a certain kind of person. Um, and um, that is very much um, then 
shapes the scientific worldview. Um, and so it's not it's not the, the scientist is never actually neutral, even if um, that's the ideal or that's the story that's told. And um, becoming neutral means to extract certain parts of what it is to be human. Um, and so, you know, the fact that science is a reductive method for the most part um, is deeply connected to the reductive view of humanity um, yes. that it has. And we're going to come to AI, but I think that's now playing out very um, substantially in the fears around AI um, that one step back are, I think, arise quite often from this denuded sense of, of humanity um, that um, is necessary to do science. For the most yes, part yes 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 exactly that's why i was i was to say that ai is becoming this like focal point where the scientist actually has to go out of the from the lab because ai was leaked out of the lab and now everybody knows about gpt and somehow it became a almost like a, this um this point around which these things is slowly changing, like with a lot of uh, struggle, but it's I, I see a change of point of view among some of us who are in AI. I'm not saying it's a majority right, view, yeah. but it's getting there. Yeah, well, I, I wonder, I mean, uh, conversations around AI very quickly get to speculations about the future. And, exactly. You know, so that, that, that it's always a bit hostage to fortune or, you know, we, we basically don't know what the future holds. Um, and so um, it may not even really be a conversation worth having. Um, but nonetheless, I think that there's two two thoughts that came to my mind as you were talking there. One is that, you know, this reductive view of what it is to be human and the reductive take on the world that science um, needs is very powerful. Um, it delivers a lot of technology. Um, and so I think that's that must be part of its attraction, maybe the main reason for its attraction. Um, but I think also I, I do wonder whether, um, you know, where we, where AI doesn't progress along a sort of upward incline of progress. Um, but actually, I wonder whether it's really more asymptotic um, that um, and with ChatGPT, which is remarkable and it suddenly appeared, it seemed. Um, I don't doubt that. And, you know, to all intents and purposes, it's passed the Turing test. Um, but nonetheless, um, I wonder whether this is another sort of ceiling. Um, with that approach to technology and um, that, that ceiling is going to have to be um, broken in some way um, rather than just, you know, ChatGPT4 and ChatGPT5 moving into some seamless future of general AI, um, which is often how the story is told. Um, you know, AI technology is often a bet on the future and, of course, that brings investment, it brings wealth too. So it's very much in the interests of at least the most people working in AI to tell this future story. Um, but I, I, I'm very interested in those figures working in AI who aren't often the ones writing headlines. They're the people you meet sort of on the quiet. Um, but you start to realize that this story of progress and inevitable um, you know, power when it comes to AI is actually a lot more complicated. And um, you know, I mean, you must know this very much better than I do. Yeah, I think the wiser and older among us know this, that this is not the end of the story. The GPT is, was really surprising, but it's we need two, three more fundamental paradigm level breakthroughs to get near human AI. And that it can yeah. take a lot of time. It's not going to go exponentially. That's what I that's what I believe a lot of a lot of us 
we can talk about it later how like the emotions of people changed around GPT because of its surprise but before that I would like to dig in, into a little bit into the theology psychology angle because I think that is also not obvious for to people how they are related uh, is you know if if I go to therapy it's usually like a secular framework and it took took me a while to figure out what I wanted from therapy and it's not about understanding me and caressing me and giving me of course it's it's about having a safe space where you trust your therapist but what I really want from my therapist is is to, to, to help me figure out who I want to become which is not not easy there's a lot of self-lying there and a lot of layers that I bring in from my childhood etc and then once it's more or less clear then help me to get there and it's again not something where just understanding will help right and this is this is like a self-transformative way of being and I think this is where maybe theology comes in because the whole thing is becoming something where I change, right? And I change into something that I think is, is a better version of myself. But how do you see the, the relationship between psychology and theology? Well, one way of picking up, given what you just said there, um, we draw on developmental psychology. And my understanding of developmental psychology, you know, as has been um, worked at by the founding figures both in psychotherapy freud was an early advocate of developmental psychology but you know figures like piaget are, are better known now um but is that are we develop as people through a series of thresholds um and those thresholds are, are crisis moments when we don't actually know what the future holds because we're still within the earlier domain and so it's just not possible for us to know it's beyond our conception beyond our imagination beyond our sense of ourselves you know so the an obvious example is a very young child when it's born um at first um it's really the only being that it's conscious of um i don't think it's probably very self-conscious um but nonetheless conscious of um and so the parent the mother is sort of part of that almost unitive experience of being um, and, you know, when things are going well, it's a, a very blissful state, I've no doubt, to be a very, very young child. Um, but quite quickly, um, the young child has to um, face the reality that, for example, you know, when it wants food, food doesn't always instantly appear or when it feels uncomfortable because it soiled itself, you know, that isn't instantly cleaned up or when it feels a bit cold um, it doesn't necessarily instantly get the warmth that it seeks um, and that crisis and you know if you've had children you know that they're very substantial crises in the life of a young child um, you know the crying um, seems to convey the sense that the world is falling apart um, unless this need is is quickly met um, and it's partly a survival thing I've no doubt about that but psychologically I think what's going on there is that the young child is facing a kind of crisis and it can't contain its feelings because it doesn't know 
that there's a wider world that will in time respond um, but it may just not respond instantly um, but you know all being well the child moves through that crisis and then realizes more and more clearly that there's a parent there's a mother there's another um, and that really what's going on when it wants the food and so on is that there's a negotiation going on a relationship is building up um, and of course that's a good thing because now rather than just the world being a bit one-dimensional it becomes two-dimensional um, there's now the child and the parent and love can be exchanged more, more clearly and freely and it's expansive the world's grown um, but that growth of love and relationship um, and also the sense of you know what it is to be human because now there's another person um, it can only go happen through the crisis because the older more unitive sense of self must break down and I think you can build a picture of the development of what it is for us through a whole series of these crises which involve breakdown um, hopefully a breakdown that doesn't destroy us and that's always a risk um, and a lot of you know mental health trouble um, is because you know there've been these kind of earlier breakdowns that weren't fully negotiated um, and they revisit in in later life um, but I think that that gives a sort of model for how um, you know, sort of crisis suffering um, struggle not knowing um, these are part of our intelligence and that without those kinds of um, uh, uh, phases um, of struggle and suffering and not knowing and so on um, our sense of the world remains very constrained very limited um, and so I think this is why psychology is deeply connected to intelligence um, and so an, an artificial intelligence that doesn't have a psychology I think well you know calling it an artificial intelligence really is a misnomer um, I've heard people say that it's better to talk about machine learning or something like that um, and that you know that makes a lot of sense to me actually um, you know, in the world of AI, our, our words quickly slip and slide and we're saying things about a computer that, you know, aren't really warranted. But um, the metaphors have just become a bit literal, um, like, you know, intelligence. Um, I think intelligence is a deeply felt notion um, that requires a history um, and is very connected to what it is to be a person. And I think to link, bring in the theological element, you know, it's not just our own inner psyches that we become more and more aware of, more and more intelligent about, you know, all being well. Um, but we, we know too that our minds start to fit the minds of the world around us. The inte our intelligence is not isolated. Um, it's part of the intelligence that forms the world around us as well, which of course is why science can be done. And the, and the great scientists have recognized this, Einstein being, you know, probably the best known example. Um, he very clearly saw himself and his own intelligence as being but a reflection of the intelligence that was in the cosmos. Um, and, you know, that's a very great realisation. Um, and again, um, it's a realisation that comes from the struggle and from the sense of finitude. And so having reverence for the greater and maybe even infinitude of intelligence around us. Um, this experience of being human in relation to the cosmos, which, you know, is ultimately a theological um, then uh, experience, um, is deeply woven into intelligence. Um, and, you know, so it seems to me that when people talk about artificial intelligence, 
we just haven't really reflected enough on what actually forms our own intelligence. And then the minute we start to do that, and the minute we ask the question of, you know, how science is even possible and so on, um, the notion of intelligence, instead of having this rather reductive form, starts to become much more expansive once again. Yeah, so I'm actually wondering, because when you're describing the child, the transformation the, ch the children go through, a lot of that is driven by biology growing up actually physically, like adolescence is driven from inside and that's why it's sometimes so hard because it feels like some, some force that you don't have control on pushing you through it. But once you become adult, at least in today's society, it's, it's common okay, it's kind of okay to, to, to stay wherever you were in, like, in your 20s. And transformation becomes optional. And so when you go through these steps, let's say actually that, you know, if I, if I think about your book on, on Dante, when the people in the purgatory are at various adult transformational stages that they are struggling with, they are the ones in the purgatory which who are not hopeless, so they, are, they still have the chance to actually go through the stages and get to, to paradise. And I feel that a lot of us uh, are stuck at certain adult stages in this, in this uh, journey through life. And especially in AI, in tech, you know, because it's related also to, the, to what we were talking about, uh, about science, that it actually forces you to be stuck at a certain level so you can detach yourself from the subject because this is what you are taught as the as the you know, method should be. So, so there are all these forces that, that keep you there and there are also the forces that keep you there that are just, I wouldn't call it laziness, but just um, it's easier to stay at a certain level and not go through these stages. So that's why I found the Ordante book so interesting because it's, uh, it's seemingly it's about theology, but no, not really. It's about uh, your spiritual journey as a person who can stuck there really in hell, like in the really bad scenes and you can be on the top of hell. So, so my, my favorite part was the top of hell, these little scenes <laughs> and the purgatory because probably, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience with those really bad people you know, who are on the, on the bottom, but I, around, around me, I see a lot of them, a lot of the people who are suffering at the top of hell in, in their life. And it's not about their future life, it's their current life, right? Mm -hmm. Or in purgatory, trying to go through the stages. So that's why mm -hmm. I think it's, and to bring in your other book on Barfield and the Secret History of Christianity, I saw a beautiful parallel because in that book you are looking at the growing up of humanity through history. And it was very much about what you're talking about, the, the, the child where it's actually the, it's, it's the waking up of humanity and self-transformation of the human society of everybody, right? That's what we go through in history. Yeah, so, so I must, I must yeah. just sort of leap in there if you don't mind actually because um owen barfield is now sat on my shoulder um and um he he actually was very clear that whilst 
um, he um, felt we could tell a story about changing consciousness through um, periods of, of sort of centuries over the millennia um, uh, in terms of human history. Um, maybe we should just say, you know, Owen Barfield, great friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, one of the inklings, both Tolkien and Lewis said that Barfield had the greatest ideas. Um, and what they were all very interested in was words and particularly how words change meaning. You know, it's why Tolkien, when he writes The Lord of the Rings, goes to all the trouble of inventing a whole language. And they realised that, um, that the experience of being um, alive is deeply connected to the language we speak. And um, what you can do there for Barfield felt was show how consciousness has changed over the centuries because of the way that words have changed meaning. So he called words fossils of consciousness. Um, but he didn't he didn't actually think that um, uh, it's like a, a, a move from being asleep to being awake. Um, he felt that more it's just different forms, different changes, different kind of constellations of consciousness. Um, and so now, whereas we have a consciousness that's very focused and based on the sense of being an individual, um, previously in different times and places, and maybe even now, um, there's a form of consciousness which is primarily based upon being a kind of collective, um, a shared consciousness. And, um, you know, so hence now we have crises of meaning that are based on the alienated or isolated self, something which, you know, is just impossible to imagine um, in previous periods of history um, but the point is that those collective forms of consciousness they have their own sophistication they have their own awareness um, you know if you read ancient myth it's quite clear they're immensely subtle um, as well as useful um, modes of intelligence and making intelligence um, available or, or, you know the cosmic intelligence available too which is why they draw us why they fascinate us we sort of get this sense they they, they hold something that maybe we now with this very advanced form of individual consciousness, which you know brings great advantages, um, but we realise too what we're missing, um, or at least what we're missing something. And so, looking to other cultures, other forms of consciousness becomes really important. Um, yeah, so just, just to that sort of corrective, um, Barfield called it um, the residue of unprocessed positivism. This idea that everything's got to progress on a kind of linear slope upwards. He thought that was the great myth of the modern world. Um, and um, so he, you know, he was very sensitive to his work being read in the same way. Um, he's, he's, he's not um, saying that in fact, um, you know, Christianity is hugely important, um, but he understood Christianity as seminal in the emergence of this stress on the individual and all the advantages that brings, but um, the disadvantages become very, very pronounced as well. Yeah, I apologize for the, the word. So this is not actually the parallel I wanted to draw was between the baby who is born, who doesn't have an in, in individuality in the beginning. He's uh, or yeah. she's. Uh, it's actually so again. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes, yeah. yeah, sometimes people do think that as sometimes it said, you know, ontology and phylogeny are the same. So that you know, the, the development of the, of the individual exactly. is the same as the development of the culture. Exactly. Um, but Barfield didn't think that was so. But there's ah, okay. maybe some echoes, but he didn't really think that was so. Okay, um, but, but what do you think about this? Because it's, it's, when a, I... it's a lot to do with, it, with, the, with the, the, the reason why the evolution of language, the emergence of language is, is such a conundrum in science is that language is born fully developed. 
Um, you can't have a language without fully developed grammar, without fully developed syntax, semantics, and so on. Um, and um, you know, so the idea that grunts and and squawks and whatever um, combined with pointing and the need to survive something and gradually a language developed. The minute you look at that theory, it, it collapses. Um, so there can't really be an incremental development of language. And figures like Barfield and, and some evolutionary um, thinkers now um, realize that language is a kind of rarefied um, receipt from the intelligence of the world around us that then human beings use as a kind of tool, perhaps in part, but also as a way of relating and communicating to the wider ecology. Um, yeah, so this the, the, the sort of um, uh, immature to mature um, uh, notion, which clearly is the case for we human individuals, it doesn't really work, I think, when it comes to notions like consciousness and language. I like, like okay, I understand. I understand where I felt the parallel was like, I would assume that in ancient, ancient societies, babies who were born into a, a group of the Dunbar number, like 150 people, the leap between being attached to the mother and being her body to the adult world was much smoother in the same way as when humanity. So it, it was a slow process. And today, because we have this notion of individuality, which is more like a, like a higher, like a society notion, uh, we get weaned off very fast from this, this very early stage, which causes a lot of psychological issues later. And the way I you know, connect it to AI is that a lot of us in science, because of the things we talked about, are sort of like compensating for that, that, that lack of the, the, the shortness of that period where we were, what, you know, what you call uh, the original participation. I see this in the, in the individual development to the original participation where you were the same with your mother's body. And so, so that period is very sh cut very short and we are separated. And this is how maybe it's connected to that sort of uh, notion in, within science that we have to separate from, you know, the subject that we're studying. So this, you know, you mentioned that, that the world creates itself such that this is science and the scientist is the person who is actually can live in with that world. So the two things co-create each other, but maybe there is a, like a psychological root of this because of the two early well, separation. I, I wonder, um, I mean, just sort of challenging a bit, if I may, you know, what you're saying there, um, you know, um, because something is connected um, doesn't mean it doesn't have a very kind of um, sophisticated, advanced notion of connection. Um, you know, uh, I think that if you look at ancient religious traditions of one sort or another, um, you know, they'll be premised on the notion of, of connection. Um, but they're in very complex and sophisticated forms of connectivity. You know, ancient religious systems with their libations and their rituals and their festivals and the sense of the gods in, in polytheistic symptom, systems, you know, they're immensely sophisticated. Um, they're all ways of negotiating that rich, rich sense of being embedded in the cosmos. Um, whereas with a child, I think at least... Um, the evidence is that 
in the very early days, it's very, very simple. It's all unity. It's just driven by one or two needs, like to be fed, to feel comfortable. Um, it's not complex at all. It becomes very complicated. Um, I've no doubt about that. Um, so the parallel, I think, doesn't really work myself. Original participation, you know, which is Barfield's expression that you use. It's original. He means just because it, it's before our notion of participation. Um, but I think it, I do actually think it's it's not right to think it was somehow simple and can be likened to a child's experience when okay. it's first born. Okay. Yeah, so let's talk about the, the Dante book, because there were like two, three notions there where I, I felt it was relevant to the AI discussion. The first one was, it was super interesting to me when you say that the, in hell, there's no novelty. Everything is just things that are rehashed. And I feel it's very much like the description of GPT. Interesting. So what, yeah, yeah. You remember this? So it's... Mm -hmm. uh, like it's a closed space there. Yeah, no, you could say, I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but it's a nice analogy. And you could say that in hell, it's a closed data set. People are obsessed with their lives um, and they're terrified about the future, but they're not able to bring anything new in. Um, I mean, I, I, I've talked about it in the book because there's no present moment. Um, and it's only in the present moment that things can change. Um, there's no imagination, there's no intuition. Um, everything is sort of increasingly frozen. But I, I, I like that sense. You could say it's a data set um, where um, it sort of sucks all the information available to it and, and tries to, you know, uh, find a way of being in the world. Um, but as, yeah, in a kind of closed cosmos um where there's nothing new um and, and genuine novelty can only really come through the imagination through inspiration through intuition because it's got to come from beyond us um and 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 our part of our task is to integrate that into our lives but you're right um yeah the infernal state um is a bit like certainly a large language model anyway I love this this analogy, and and then when when you go to paradise, there it's it's the opposite. Like it's almost like this ideal creative space where you can be in uncertainty without the fears that come with it. Yeah, um, it there the sense of desire, for example, has changed. Um, so um, it's not the desire based on lack. It's a desire based on um, the joy of knowing more and more. Um, and um, so the finite soul in paradise um, is able to enjoy the movement through, through infinity, um, uh, knowing that, as it were, wherever they turn, there's going to be something more beautiful to see. Um, uh, it's a bit like, I, I liken it, I think, to a piece of music. You know, when you know a piece of music, um, you want to get to know it better and better and better. Um, and it's because you know the music will keep on giving more and more and more to you. Um, you don't want to know it because you fear um, you might lose it, um, which is more the infernal kind of desire. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so you're, there's a, that's what's genius about Dante is that he very clearly, I think, in the infernal, the purgatorial and the paradisal states of mind, um, shows how they're different and, and you mentioned you know how 
and the early um, infernal states, um, you know, carry a lot of resonance now. Um, in the very early stages, the first groups of people that Dante meets are figures that don't really know what life's about. Um, you know, they're, they're struggling, they're looking for leaders, they're looking for a kind of messiah, um, or alternative, they're looking for a kind of fear, because fear can give life shape and meaning. And, you know, we live in a time that's full of fears um, and they may be grounded um, to some degree. I'm not denying there aren't real things to fear, but nonetheless, I think the reason why they become so, they dominate the narrative is because they, they, they seem to give a kind of negative form of meaning. Um, you know, whereas in the purgatory, what's been learned is that fear actually contains the seeds of hope. Yeah. Um, and so, whilst people in purgatory are suffering too, um, they know that this suffering is much more like the crises of developmental psychology, and um, that if they can bear them, if they can hold them, stay with them, they're actually breakdowns that are leading to a breakthrough. And so in purgatory, there is the sense of expansion. Um, it's not a closed data set, you know, like the infernal state of mind. Yes, yes. So there was actually one it was it, like even historically it's very interesting to me that i think the the minor sin of today that's probably the most dominant is uh, addiction because even technology is so like you know it's it's optimized for addiction and in in dante's book the whole the only point where it was mentioned it was about gluttony like the only thing you could could have been addicted to was food at that time and it was probably not the not a major problem or, or not a lot of people were suffering from this because we were like more down in the Manslow pyramid like right? we had to have had to work hard just to maintain ourselves 700 years ago and today where the society is such that we have those basic needs met we suddenly start to suffer at that very particular point about gluttony and the, the reason why I'm bringing this in, because one of, you know, GPT is something that everybody knows, that it seems like the first big lab leak of AI, but it's it, it actually not. First collision between society and AI is recommendation engines that are behind YouTube, all the social media. TikTok was actually built on it, on top of it, and those recommendation engines while you know in the beginning the idea was just to optimize the, the content that you will consume so you will be happy <laughs> it very rapidly became a tool to hijack the dopamine system like computer games so that's why for me the gluttony was one of the things that were that that from the ai point of view uh, uh, took my attention and I was I started to thinking about it in these these terms. Uh, so, what do you think about? Do you have any experience with this uh, first encounter yeah, with AI? Um, I, I think I mean one of the one of the I suppose I often approach these things by thinking about the words that are used. Taking a lead from Barfield, um, you know words. We think we we're inclined to treat them as if they're just signs that sort of identify something, but words contain their own wisdom. And for example, you know, when it comes to modern social media, the fact that has there's been developed what's called an infinite scroll, you know, where you just keep flicking and so on. 
Um, you know, the word infinite um, until recent times always had this theological overtone. Um, there was um, the infinite domain of the eternal um, in the divine. Um, and so the infinite was something that the finite soul um, had a yearning for, um, but a yearning that certainly in the mystical traditions would have been known to have been satisfied by seeing within your finitude a reflection of the infinitude of the divine. You know, so the human soul becomes a microcosm of the macrocosm of the soul or someone like the poet William Blake would talk about um, a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower holding infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Um, that was um, the kind of consciousness um, that was being invited. And now, though, the infinite scroll is just a kind of more and more and more and more and more and more, but in a fragmented way, um, you know, just one thing after another that doesn't add up to anything, doesn't um, reveal more than itself, even in its fragment. Um, like a grain of sand can reveal a world to William Blake. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, that's part of the confusion um, that technology has brought. Um, you know, in some ways, th there's very noble aspirations behind technology. And this, this goes back to the early modern period, someone like Francis Bacon, you know, who's so significant in terms of shaping the modern scientific mind. And he thought that technology was being given to humanity by God in order to return us to the Garden of Eden to relieve suffering. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, that aspiration is still very operative um, in, in, in the, the, you know, the desire to create technology alongside the desire to make money or whatever else goes on, no doubt about that. Um, but um, but it's, it's profoundly mistaken because it's got this collapsed view of what it is to be human. Um, and so, you know, a finite sense or a mortal sense, a material sense of what it is to be human can only view the infinite in terms of more and more and more and more. Um, it can't view it in terms of seeing um, the one thing opening onto all things um, because that, that vertical notion of the imagination just isn't available um, in a collapsed flat world. Um, but nonetheless, the desire somehow to find satisfaction lives on, but in this very perverse form of the infinite scroll um, that somehow, I, I, sometimes when I'm flicking through social media now, I ask myself, you know, what, what am I hoping for with the next flick? You know, what's going on in that fragment of a moment when I look, look for, you know, in, in, in one way, it's just some distraction that, you know, I want to click on that and read what has happened to, you know, to flick up. But of course, when that becomes a way of life, um, the distraction only really gives momentary relief if it gives any kind of relief at all. And so you start to realize actually you have to pull back from, yeah, maybe, you know, that's when it becomes a bit addictive, like you're suggesting, and um, it becomes the struggle to pull back from this um, false promise of infinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, the technology behind is AI, which means that whoever designed the technology doesn't have to know anything about dopamine or you. It just has to be such that it's optimized for you to stay there. <laughs> 
mm-hmm. and then it self optimizes itself to 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 dose the dopamine in the exact right sequence so you stay there right you mean see mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I, I actually found one therapeutic use of this that's uh, sort of my story about three years ago in beginning of covid i got really really hooked on facebook when they started to have these short videos and you know after before going to sleep my frontal lobe was already sleeping you know so i didn't have any control and it was almost like a dream state because of the lack of control so it's some lower brain structure that actually shows which where where i'm going and i ended up going towards uh, cage fights you know this really violent uh, fights uh, between two guys sometimes two women i felt the adrenaline coming you know so i was so i was actually embodying those things and it was really bad not for a long time because when i woke up my frontal lobe woke up and said it's not possible i'm doing this in the evenings I have to do something about it. And I did two things. One was get rid of Facebook on my phone. So that's where the alg- their algorithm actually didn't work for me because I it was so optimal that I, my phone frontal lobe said, my other self said that, no, it's over. But the other thing I, was that I brought this into therapy. The actual history of what I was watching it, because it's not arbitrary. You are doing it in a certain direction that's probably telling you something about yourself. And so the decision I made then is that I want to do this. I want to be in a fight. I want to learn self-defense. I was at 51. I went down to in the dojo. I was the oldest one and the greenest one. And it's, it, it, it has been like a transformative decision. I mean, it's, that it happened uh, two, two and a half years ago. And I'm I'm immensely grateful that I did this because it was, you know, this is a subject of another discussion. But but this was really it it really like participatively transformed my me. So it, there was also a lot of you know procedural learning how to this, do this, how to do that. There was a lot of you know this perspectival like how to fall and how to feel. What what do you feel when somebody throws you? Uh, uh, over over the, their shoulder and then it but it also changed who i am like i i stand differently because of this and this the whole thing started because of this you know encounter with the ai so when i'm thinking well, about I, I, it, I see i wonder whether there's a kind of theological interpretation of that which is that exactly. what you did was you moved from this uh a sort of flatland um accumulative um a disembodied uh experience of in this case the cage fighting into a world where um it was you participating um but also you were although you were learning the techniques and so on as you say um you were also drawing on a whole rich spiritual worldview which you know is part and parcel of um uh, martial arts um, and so I think when you maybe you might say I, I mean you know you, you tell me whether this feels right but um, when you um, you changed as a person I, I imagine that was partly because you realized there was um, a whole other way of conceiving what it is to be a person that you could change into um, a world 
didn't just sort of as it were open up to you but presented itself to you that you could then step into through the practice um and so you know that in in that transformation you described there is the kind of lie of the narrow world of the purely technological um but it also though was a portal that you could step through to discover um the much broader and, and richer sense of what it is to be human yes exactly and the inkling was there from this addictive technology so it did so so this is this is an example i tell to people when they just trying to thrash technology that when you have when you encounter something like that there is always something in there which you can use for good and it if you if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger kind of mm -hmm. thing you know so i'm this this is one of the experiences that makes me optimistic actually that whatever technology we let throw at us if it doesn't kill us it can lead to something better but not through the the, the actual objective of the technology it has to come from somewhere else mm. Well, you know, to, to refer back to William Blake's phrase about finding a world in a grain of sand, um, you, you know, in a way you might say that technology at first pass, it gives you one grain of sand, then another grain of sand, then another grain of sand, and another grain of sand. But after a while, you start to realize that's not very satisfying. But just one grain of sand itself um, can open up a whole world. And so your energy or your attention, instead of um, being fixated on the accumulation, the kind of infinite scroll, starts to be very interested in how the infinite might be contained in the one thing. Um, and so as a way you stop scrolling and enter, the, enter that world. Yeah. Beautiful. So let's talk about the AI, the, the 10 points. So I have my notes and it doesn't have, we don't have to go through those 10 points. It's just, you know, it gives a sort of like a... Uh, story i i liked it very much it was very concise it was maybe 20 minutes and so you started saying that we have passed the turing test and that it's not a good test and i found it very interesting because actually john verbecki has another kind of test he calls it the or i called it maybe the the dialogue test where so the the turing test is basically where where you this where you talk to an AI and you cannot uh, say it's not a human, right? That's when it passes the, they can differentiate between a human and an AI just by this conversational interface. And so John said that, no, 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 what you have to do is take two AIs and talk, let them talk to each other. <laughs> and that was at GPT-3 when he said this, that they go batshit crazy really fast and I tried it and they did go <laughs> very fast towards a, it's really like the Dante's hell it's like they go to a, a one sentence and they just thanking each other and repeating the same thing over and over so that was a complete disaster then I did this for GPT-4 and it was much much better it started to, so so one 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 question was it started to talk about photography with itself and just bringing up different types of photography it, after a while it was obvious it wasn't human because human imagination goes like all different directions 
And the other one was about more philosophical subject, I don't remember, but what's happened there that it was starting to summarize the discussion, both of them, just summarize with different words. So that was a much more sophisticated hell, like it was still not bringing in any novelty, just rehashing the same thing with different words. So it, it made a big leap between GPT-3 and GPT-4, but it was still very obvious that it was not two humans talking. So I don't know. So, so because you said in that, uh, that video that uh, the GPT passed the Turing test and we have to live with it now and that it's okay because it's not a good test, right? That was your first point. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose I was using um, the phrase Turing test in a way that it's used more journalistically. Um, you know that uh, um, you know you can, you can a human can have a conversation with ChatGPT three. Um, I mean, it, I, I think it does get a bit dreary quite quickly, actually. Um, but nonetheless, um, uh, the thing that really drew me though was um, was actually Turing himself. You know, who in the paper where he proposes this test himself says it's not a very good test. I um, mean, it, it often seems to get forgotten, but but um, the the reasons why Turing said it's not a very good test really interests me. Um, the, the the standout reason is because Turing himself, Alan Turing himself, believes that part of our intelligence, part of our communication, um, is well, he called it telepathy, um, that we receive information um, and um, we engage with the wider world. Um, through certainly nonverbal means, um, and telepathy really, you know, means the receipt of a, a feeling at a distance, telepathos, um, and um, that that informs our intelligence quite as much as the pure exchange of data or information. And he, so he thought that actually a better test would have would screen out, have to sort of uh, take it, have a control for that receipt of information well it's not really information it's sort of feeling intuition um imagination inspiration that primarily comes not from the the tidy exchange of information like words um but through a, a sort of feeling a felt engagement i mean in, in the world of psychotherapy this is all standard it's called the transference the counter-transference and we know from daily experience that it informs and it's very useful um but it's not um it, it's not a straightforward data um you know it's not it's not discrete it's not definable um you have to follow it you have to discern it you have to interpret it you have to co-create with it mm -hmm. um and yeah, um, I, I, yeah. that 50 years ago you know turing um was alert to that um mm -hmm. and so um has already um said how intelligence is much much more um involved than than purely the exchange of the data type information um and so whilst he proposes this turing test uh, in the same paper he, he he says look sort of don't take it too seriously um this is just a, this is almost a paper that defines how a computer um so far as as we as we we know and i think as turing know won't actually replicate human intelligence as it was providing a sort of a way of, of assessing whether a computer has replicated human intelligence. Yeah, and I think in the dialogue test, it, this comes out because you don't have those, uh, those inspirations or those telepathic transferences between two GPTs, obviously. 
right? So it, 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 kind of, it becomes very, very fast, uh, clear that there is no imagination going on there, right? Mm -hmm. So your second point was, uh, it's, it's quite prosaic, but true that the, the motivation for AI leaders is to oversell AI, which is always the case for technology because they, their sort of livelihood depends on it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've got to the moment now where there's a number of AI leaders that are sort of wishing they didn't oversell AI. Um, I mean, in the UK, uh, Mustafa Seliman, who's the head of DeepMind, um, has recently got a lot of attention because of a book he's written. And he's very worried and thinks that, you know, we should legislate and so on. And, um, uh, you know, that, well, nuclear technology, I suppose, in terms of energy, provision was heavily legislated and so didn't develop in the way that it was originally imagined in the 1950s and the 60s um, that you know there were um, like the president of the US Nixon um, had had the sense that there would be thousands of nuclear power plants um, spread around the US really rather quickly and he hoped that it would then uh, mean that the US wasn't rely on, reliant on oil and so politically wasn't so tied to the Middle East and so on. That was a kind of early vision and that didn't happen. That hasn't happened um, because of legislation. So technology can be limited by legislation. Um, there's a lot of pressure points that a government can exert on technology. You know, we, we talk about AI as if, as, if, as if it doesn't have a material substrate, but you know, it requires a lot of power, it requires a lot of human ingenuity, it requires chips. Um, you know, so they have to be manufactured. There's a kind of industry behind it all and so on. And governments can 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 hinder that or prevent it um, if they want. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, I think that um, uh, talking up the future, um, usually in terms of what it's going to deliver positively for humankind, that's that's just part and parcel of science. Um, you know, science is, is it delivers things for now. And there's no doubt about it, but it's a constant bet that it's going to deliver more for now as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's very standard in science journalism um, for um, the story where the science hasn't shown what was thought. The call is, but we need more science. Um, but when the story is the science has shown what we thought, the call is still we need more science because we'll know more. Um, you know, so it's a very heads I win, tails you lose kind of environment. Um, the, the whole scientific enterprise, um, uh, you know, it has it, it's, it's our myth of progress. You know, that's how we think things will advance is through science. Um, and so AI is, is, is uh, uh, you know, it's maybe a bit more intense because of venture capital and so on, but nonetheless is um, uh, replicating that. Mm -hmm. The third point was very interesting. It was about feelings. And you actually asked us to think about what are the desires, what are the hopes, and what are the despair that is played out in this story, if we can call it that. And I found it very interesting because it's a, that's a more profound question than Turing test or, or, or GPT is... Uh, what is the kind of world we are creating and how is it related to our deepest uh, feelings, which is usually not, not, you know, discussed in tech discussions. 
Mm. No, I've read that a lot of tech is driven by quite narrow competitive impulses. <laughs> um, you know, apparently in Silicon Valley, um, there's an obsession with what the Chinese are doing and staying ahead of the Chinese. That's really a lot of the impulse. Um, or, you know, the, the race between, even, you know, in a company like DeepMind, which is based here in London, um, they in the foyer, you can see it, they have, um, uh, you know, what one AI achieved overnight versus what another AI achieved overnight. So there's even internal competition. Um, you know, that's, that, the whole industry is, um, in, you know, in quite significant measure driven by that, I, so I understand. Yeah, there's a lot of but, fear, but, but fear and you, anger too. No reference really to what it is to be human and, and what we really might desire and so on. I mean, a, a number of the, the books on AI, that's why I've got this from too. Um, uh, you know, that there'll, there'll be writers, even if they write about the concerns they have um, and they make proposed rules or laws or whatever that they feel are needed, um, there will always be a moment where they ask this question though, but we also need to ask ourselves what it is to be human. What do we want? Um, and they have almost nothing to say about that, um, which isn't surprising because, you know, as we began to get to that position in the AI world, you have to have collapsed your sense of what it is to be human. Um, you know, that's what it is to be an, an, an AI expert. Um, and so, you know, they're not the people to ask this question. Mm. So point number four is that he pointed out that the, the goal of science is to model, to propose models, and AI is one model of cognition. But then the model gets confused with the with reality, and that's that's another collapse. We can talk, talk about it in this way. Um, so yes, I mean the the, the, the parallel I, I I was thinking of recently was um, I did this physics you know degree, and um, my tutor um is actually quite a well-known cosmologist um, and what he does is he builds models of the cosmos on a computer supercomputer runs the model and then compares the results from the model with what's observed of the universe itself but he never thinks he's building universes in a supercomputer um you know he knows it's a model but you, you wouldn't make that slippage but i think because we've got so used to describing ourselves as information processing machines um, you know, the brain is just routinely likened to a data center. Um, uh, we, 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 we forget that the model is not reality. Um, it's just a model. Um, and, and, and yeah, so that, that, that gets lost in the world of AI. So I would push back on this a little bit, because in my yeah. mind, AI is not a science in the classical notion where science is about knowing more or discovering the truth it's more engineering again it's not to denigrate it but just like a in sort of paradigmatic sense it's about creating something so engineers the goal of engineering is not to discover the truth but based on what truth we discovered create stuff create things that become part of reality so in that sense, for me, AI is not a scientific product, but an engineering product that was based on some scientific discoveries or you know, computer science. On the other hand, I would agree with you that um, it's not 
modeling. It's, it's, it is not cognition or it's not the, the, the real intelligence, but it's bit more more because the, the underlying metaphysics of the engineering paradigm is that minds are machines. See what I mean? So we are creating, mm. no, so creating machine-like minds. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, so yeah, so um, I guess that I, I'd have to reframe my point, um, which is that um, the human mind is being described using machine metaphors. Um, and so then the engineering feels like it can build the equivalent of human mind. Yeah, there's that kind of uh, intermediate step that's necessary. Um, you know, it, it, it ever was thus, whatever is the advanced technology of the time is used to supply metaphors to describe the human mind. Freud, he lived in the age of the steam engine. He's full of steam engine analogies to describe. We, we still have them. You know, we talk about catharsis, a sort of release of pressure. Uh, you know, where does that come from? It comes from a steam engine. I didn't um, know it, you know, it, it maybe is useful somewhat, um, but, um, you know, we also realize now because we're not so caught up in metaphors of, of the steam engine that it's it's limited um, and I think so I, I guess that um, you know mm. as the engineering um, advances um, so the metaphors change um, and the engineers uh, in actually a, in a world... create the metaphors right yeah they, they realize the metaphors in certain sense yeah it, you know it, 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 it you know the metaphor is using something that is literal in one world to describe something in another world um, so and you know and in a world of technological um, advance and and where where the whole economy is where is 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 uh, organized around the production of technology um, you know surprise surprise we use our metaphors um, from the world of engineering but I guess maybe that's maybe to put it more neatly now I'm thinking um, a bit you know it's it, we don't confuse models with reality so we shouldn't confuse metaphors with reality exactly um, metaphors. <laughs> help open up reality to us but they're not reality itself yeah but the funny thing is that the engineer actually realizes the metaphor somehow <laughs> so the well, metaphor no, the is, metaphor becomes creative and then it's applied in other areas wouldn't that be so say, say it again the, the 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 engineering supplies the the metaphor um uh, that's but, for sure true um, but, but i was actually thinking that it goes in the other way around that the metaphor becomes reality somehow like the mind is a machine it's not necessarily an engineering it's it's more philosophy but then the the engineer takes that metaphor and makes an, a machine that looks like the mind something like that and then we believe the metaphor <laughs> so it, yeah, it actually realizes it yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah we certainly believe the metaphor yeah, yeah i think that's right we certainly believe the metaphor i mean just incidentally though um you know this idea about minds being machines and so on and the mechanical philosophy as, as francis bacon called it um it's so it's it's very paradoxical because in other areas of science like in fundamental physics um the, it's now quite easy to find physicists that are saying the machine metaphor doesn't work when it comes to reality um and and there's a, there's a growing um you know, part of modern physics that is talking about um, reality being much more like an organism and that machine interactions are just a tiny, rather specialist fragmentation of that much broader notion of interaction. I mean, you get this a bit in information science now. Yeah, um, yeah, it's yeah, much yeah. more. Yeah, and actually, the metaphors that are being used. 
the organism metaphor is very interesting because there are some people like Michael Levin who start to use the organism metaphor for engineering and say that once we have AI everywhere, these kind of adaptive algorithms, we will have to think about the, 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 the totality of them as organisms that uh, rather than controllable machines. And so control becomes persuasion, like what we do with, with uh, minded creatures. We cannot control them totally. We can try to persuade them to do something. And that's how a lot of biological organizations work. It's, it's, it's yeah, very yeah. interesting if, if this metaphor takes takes off because it will redefine what engineering is. So I'm very much living mm. it in, in my research actually. Yeah, uh, interesting, yeah. So that, but then you have to watch the direction of travel. So the needs for a different metaphor um, to describe reality because the old metaphor has stopped working. The machine metaphor in this case has stopped working. So you look to organism or organismic metaphors if that's the word, um, uh, it, but reality, as it were, is the ultimate arbiter of these things. You might say, um, you know, not what the engineer is building. Um, the end, what the engineer is building, may be very, very useful and and, and complicated and sophisticated and so on. But they, they become um, part of reality. So it's, it's, uh, it goes back and forth because we create okay. reality, right? But yeah, it's. Uh... Well, I think we, I, I would say we co-create. We, yeah. we we participate in reality and yeah. and can uh, amplify it and um, and dwell in certain parts of reality and so on by the worlds we build, the cities we live in, what we read, the art we make, and so on. Um, but ultimately, I think that um, we don't we we d we're discovering more of reality rather than making reality. That would be a way of putting it. Or, or both actually so so your fifth and sixth points are about this in the fifth point you say that we we don't compute we dwell in presence and we don't rush through our memories to seek something like the computers do it's more like they pop up for some some reason and i was wondering it's it, it reminded very much to the 4p of john verbecki so it's like it's it it, ha it has a taste of a first-person view versus a third-person view, what you're seeing there, like we are participating in, in reality, not just observing it and reacting to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, this, this is part, so this would be drawing on another set of metaphors, which would be the field metaphors, um, you know, which again are very influential in science, in electromagnetic science particularly, and, and even now I think in, in some areas of biology and um, where, um, in systems biology where it's realized that as it were every level of um, the organism has to be factored in somehow and and that gets very complicated very quickly there's a combination and explosion as it's sometimes said um, if you try and approach it through a computational method um, so bringing in field metaphors becomes um, another way of approaching it um, but I but I, I I'm also very influenced by the discussion about memory and how memory works Again, another great conundrum in science. Um, and I, I suspect it's because memory is not stored in our brain. Um, you know, we're not actually, we haven't got data centers in our skulls, um, but actually that um, the brain is some kind of uh, organ for interacting with the wider um, world around us. Um, and that uh, memory too is um, in that wider world, much like physical objects are in that wider world. 
Um, and that's why, you know, we have these experiences that you turn a corner and suddenly remember what you were thinking when you last turned that corner. Um, and it's why, you know, we don't have memory recall, you know, like um, a computer diving into a, a sort of chip um, looking for the relevant bit of data that's been filed away correctly, um, but that we um, we muse and we we somehow go into our bodies and and we and, and a much better way to remember things is actually to have a sort of open mind rather than trying to go through everything that's in your mind. Um, now you know this is more controversial. The idea that memory is not stored um, in the brain that that would not that would certainly not be the standard hypothesis. But the standard hypothesis is really struggling, I think. Um, and so there are a few, um, you know, uh, people who work in memory and are, are trying to look to different metaphors to understand memory and field metaphors uh, is one of them. Yeah, and, and perhaps one not, not so controversial say, thing to say is that uh, like our propositional memory, like semantic memory, is has been outsourced for a long time since uh, even like speech is somehow like that but then uh, since writing for sure we started to put it on things that uh, store the memory and then our brain is just an interface to them to trigger those memories yeah i mean that, that's certainly so we've, we've used technologies um to help our memory um, but i'm i'm in a way i'm suggesting something a bit more radical which is that um, uh, our memories are embedded in the world in which we live, um, not just devised, you know, not just, not just put into the world in which we live through the technologies that we might develop, like writing. Um, it, it seems yeah, to me yeah, to follow yeah. from this, you know, if you, if, you, if you accept that intelligence is actually part of the cosmic reality and that our intelligence is just a reflection or, or a fragment of that, you know, which you which is why science works. It seems to me that that's what Einstein was saying, um, that uh, he realized that he could use his imagination and his mathematical abilities um, to sort of produce a kind of condensed version of one part of the cosmic intelligence. Um, you know, so too our memories are like that. Um, that uh, this is standard in Plato. You know, Plato says that memory is really recollection, um, it's remembrance. Um, and so, the person with a good memory um, isn't actually someone that can just, you know, stack up a list of things in their mind, um, but is someone who is open through the person that they are to the world around them. And so is visionary, for example. Um, and that's because they're remembering, they're able to recollect that which is um, around them and put it into a particular form, no doubt about that, that suits a certain time and place or uses a certain kind of technique like mathematics. No, no, um, absolutely. The, the wellspring, the source, is in, is breathed into us. Is no, absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. Just I thought that it would be easier for someone who is who who gets this thought first time to understand that it's already started with the semantic memory. But then you have the procedural memory, how to do things that are obviously related to to the objects we surround ourselves with and use tools basically, and then episodic memory so, so these are the four things in the system semantic procedural episodic and the self and you are very much talking about the top, top two ones the participatory and the perspectival levels where mm. basically what you're saying if i understand correctly is that yourself and your 
perspectival, so episodic memory. Things that happened with you are not in not in your brain, but they are also outsourced, and it's, it's, it's a very interesting thought because it means that mm -hmm. you are we are connected, right? I mean, I, you may you may be saying this actually already, but even procedural memory, um, like driving a car, for example, um, when you have to remember the procedure, you're not very good at it. But when you can get in the flow of all the traffic and everything that's going on around you, um, so you know, a good car driver actually is much more able to receive from the world around them than they are just know what they want, need to do next. Yeah, and if they yeah. have to concentrate too much on what they need to do next, yeah, they're not very good Sport driver. and musicians, that's very well known, like musicians. Yeah, exactly. Down exactly and plays yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you have to start it from the beginning because you cannot start in the middle. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so point number six was that technology is unadaptive. So it's, it reminds me to the Dante's hell, actually. And that our world, the world we live in is already adapted to technology. So technology is not taking over reality, but reality is built in a such way that technology fits in. And it's reminded well, very much. Reality, yeah. the, mod, the, the reality that, we, that, that shapes the modern world. Um, which I think is a kind of a yeah. very particular take on reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it very it reminded me to 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 young Megalo Christ's uh, two hemisphere world, where how the left hemisphere takes over and actually built a world in which it feels good, right? And so it dominates, and our internal world, scientific, you know, dualism, and outer world, this squared cities and nature left out and technology and how did these two things you know co-create each other it was very interesting yeah. yeah and again you know i think that it's important to remember that the dream of like the perfect thinking machine um is an ancient dream um and it, it you can feel it you can see how it existed in various parts of the world in history but it particularly becomes um, the way that the modern world starts to shape itself. Again, with figures like Francis Bacon, um, you know, Francis Bacon dreams of the perfect thinking machine and he, he feels that it, it would be better than a human um, thought because uh, it he, for Francis Bacon, it wouldn't be distracted by emotion and feeling and so on. I mean, I think that's mistaken myself as we've been saying earlier, but nonetheless, this is the kind of dream um, but Francis Bacon wasn't able to build that machine because he only had, you know, wood and water and things like that available to him. He didn't have silicon chips, so just practically it wasn't possible. But um, uh, you know, that that starts um, the effort to build a modern world um, that is 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 making itself ready for the so-called perfect thinking machine. And it, you know, and for plenty of people now. With, with very powerful silicon chips, it feels like maybe the perfect thinking machine can now actually be built. Yes. Um, but the reason why it, it feels so compelling is because we've been dreaming and bringing um, that world into reality for, for so long um, and have forgotten other parts yeah, of reality yeah. in the process. So then you said that attention is a moral act and that Panic, and that's very interesting. I will explain why. So panic makes attention more and more focused. So that's true. When we are in a fear, our attention gets very narrow. 
onto the object of the fear, like the lion or whoever is attacking us. And so we should start, try to understand where our fears come from and learn to step out and look at our fears and then widen our attention. So it's almost like a cookbook recipe of how to not, not to push down, but how to manage your fears. And I think this is very important because what's happened historically is the GPT did not just surprise the big public. GPT surprised a lot of researchers researchers that were saying like three years ago that this is not possible including me actually i didn't think that this very simple paradigm of just trying to predict the next world on whatever corpus and whatever algorithm that this paradigm will lead to uh, algorithms like gpt that are so good at conversing with us and giving us plans and giving us information and a lot of people so, the, so there was this psychological effect where it wasn't about, wasn't only about uh, their scientific standing, like I predicted something and it wasn't true, but the fact that their predictions were wrong made their world collapse, right? So you, they had to deal with also this, this, this problem of, okay, I'm, maybe I'm not that, that good at predicting things. And then fear. So if I'm not that good at predicting things, maybe the worst will come because that's that's a very good assumption if you're in a forest and you really don't know what's going on around. Try to hide, yeah, right? So then, then there was this, this, this in my mind, this is what started this movement of um, of break the putting brakes on, on AI and trying to stop or trying to slow it down, which is actually not maybe not a very bad policy, but 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 this is the, the way I see the, the 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 like the psychological roots of this. And and when you say fear makes us narrow and we should understand our fears, this is what it reminded me to. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um certainly, you know, the way um to live with fear is to give yourself the space to start to know more than just the fear um and so um i think that this moment around ai um is a moment to ask again but what is intelligence and not just be caught up with you know terminator like um fears that you know it's about to wake up or at least it's about to um you know develop um general notions of, of intelligence so it can set its own agenda and so on um and that that that's just feeding the fear um but to ask ourselves now what is intelligence we can do that now you know we can do that um it, it's rather been forgotten but there's there's plenty of good understandings of what intelligence is um and um uh, that i fear will, would um i mean who knows we're talking about um world movements here um and so who knows what's going to happen um, and bad things do happen tragedies do occur there's no doubt about that um but it seems to me to be important to ask this question which we can ask and ask an answer in some quite substantial measure 
what is intelligence again and not just let it be led by people that have a very narrow view of intelligence actually that was uh, your next point is that um, technology can ease suffering it can help to, uh, help us to connect with others and that uh, love of life is part of intelligence which was a very interesting statement and what you love is what you yeah, attend yeah. to yeah so it's uh, i mean well you know this comes from dante but not only dante but the um the intellect and love are deeply connected um and in in at least two ways one is because you know um the intellect is intentionally driven um you know to develop your intellect you need to 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 look to look at something to try and understand something and there's always that movement towards something um and what you move towards it may be what you fear um but it you know hopefully more commonly it's what you love what you long for um and so the intellect is always as it were behind love that was the initial movement towards what the intellect then wants to understand um and actually i think you can even say that um the intellect then maybe gets some knowledge of what's loved um but in doing that it always has to um make what's loved into its own forms of understanding and so in some ways if it was just the intellect it, it's always going to reduce and sort of lose what's loved in the same moment um so there's the sense that love can actually reach further than the intellect um again you know th this this is a rather abstract way of putting something that's actually an everyday experience um you know if you try and describe your beloved um you know it it perhaps does a good job in the sense it captures some of their characteristics some of their qualities and so on but if you feel you've summarized the whole of them in your description um you're yeah. going to lose them and they uh, hate it <laughs> uh, or or similarly it's why poetry is a form of intelligence you know a great poem understands that words um can are better when they're regarded as um sort of pointers or indicative um or they um they conjure a sense of something but what the words can't express the edge of words um which of course dante knows about very very well that that silence around the words is really where um the awareness the participation occurs um and and so you know love both guides the intellect but also is always ahead of the intellect maybe um refined and discerned through the intellect um and and so on but yeah i think that that's that's why um intelligence um is deeply connected to love yeah it's beautiful <laughs> and so your last point is is to say to have patience embrace the boredom dwell in uncertainty convert suffering to hope and think about our own psychology these are my notes actually so. right right yeah <laughs> well i mean this maybe in a way takes us back to where we began um if we're yeah. drawing to a close now because this is the purgatorial state yeah um you know where there is suffering but there's hope um where there is um there is time but the time is the present moment now unlike the inferno so the present moment is the only moment where there can be change um but there's also the awareness that change takes time and so there's the need for patience 
Um, and so, yeah, what, what you just summarised there in a way is the move from the infernal, closed, locked, limited data set state of mind to the purgatorial one, which is still hard, but um, it genuinely knows it's going somewhere, not in a sort of progressive sense, but in an expansive sense. Okay. So th these were your, your 10 points and it's a beautiful way to close this. I have only one question about this is that where do you think this is going and what would you advise to me? What would you be your advice to me as a researcher in AI, like what to do? Look, um, I, I don't know that I could suggest anything. I imagine that you, you, you know, you have much better a sense of that yourself. Um, both where it might go, but also, you know, what to do. Um, I mean, I, you know, my plea in a way is for an, um, not so much an expanded sense of intelligence, but a true sense of intelligence, just by reflecting on what our intelligence actually is. Um, and, uh, you know, if we, if we want to grow in that of which we already are, and rather than just build... Um, you know, models that no doubt have a certain kind of power and I've no doubt will bring change. Don't get me wrong in all this. I'm not saying this isn't very significant, um, but can that significance be a prompt to become more aware of our own significance once more? Um, and, you know, so bring back meaning and so on. Um, even, you know, the, the word crisis um, has this old sense that the crisis point in, a, in an illness was when things were going to turn. And they can turn for the worse, but they can also turn for the better. Um, and so I suppose, you know, whether you feel, maybe this is my question to you, do you <laughs> feel that this crisis moment can be a turn for the better rather than this panic-driven fear of what's going to happen? I'm, I'm personally very optimistic, but it's, I don't know where it comes from. It's mysterious because people with the same background and same upbringing can be very pessimistic. I, I very much enjoy my work, which is which right now, actually, you know, with GPT, it's actually narrowed the scope because everybody somehow jumped on language models and AI was much, much broader than that. And it's still much, much broader. So I'm not much into that direction. I also think that that sort of language model thing is limited. We, we fed most of what has been written by humanity ever into these machines. So there, are, there is not much more data. There can be some improvement on the algorithmic side and on the size of the models. But it also um, opens up several other directions there is there is a lot of talk about putting it, it, it reminds me to what you were saying because putting episodic memory into these language models because these language models don't remember what happens with, with what happens with them between you and the, the language model it, they have a very short shorter memory but they don't remember if they are not your personal assistant they don't remember what you did uh, with them or what you call converse with them uh, 10 days ago and there are some technological and uh, and uh, business uh, problems why we don't do that now why don't you have your own personal language model 
So there is definitely some 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 opening there to make them more personalized. But in terms of like containing more information, it's not possible because there's no more information. Everything is there that was written. There is some direction into multimodality, so models that can also look at pictures and video. But in terms of you know our discussion, I th I think like like metaphysically they are limited because they don't have a body. So what I'm interested in the most is uh, embodying these things. And if you don't even have to think about complicated robots, like just put AI in a little device like your Wi-Fi antenna that you can communicate with it. It can learn your habits and and adapt to them. And that would that goes into the, the, this direction of uh, Michael Levin's uh, paradigm change to think about these systems as, as organisms more than just machines. Because once your Wi-Fi learns your habits, it adapts to you, it will have an individuated model about the world. It's, it will be your world. So if you swap your Wi-Fi antenna with your neighbor, they will not work. You buy a new one, the old antenna will have to teach the new one about what it knows. And these 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 are more like biological analogies than engineering analogies. Because we used to just download the old one into the new, but it might not be possible. So so yeah, in, I've in heard people is this connected to what you're saying? I've heard AI people say that they think the future is much more gonna be cybernetics. So actually, I, I didn't understand that what you meant by this. This was one of your points that I didn't mention. So, so what do you mean by that? So I, as I understand it, cybernetics is um, uh, the, the way that technology is always um, integrated with, um, you know, the, well, particularly with the human body, um, but maybe with other bodies as well. And um, so rather than building models, um, and as it were, then operating within the closed um, cosmos of the model itself, um, there's this constant exchange of information, you know, from the person to the technology. And, um, you know, so, so someone who has a cybernetic arm, a false arm, um, it wouldn't work if the computer in, in, the, in the false arm had to constantly build a model of the world in which the arm was. Because it, you know, you get again this sort of combinatory explosion. Um, but instead, um, there's the, the there's the the interface between you know the human intention, the mechanical arm, and then the world itself. And so you have that sort of cybernetic flow. Yes, I know. I agree with that. That, that it's a really good direction, and it also matches what John Verrock is asking for. That we, when you know, there is this big word in AI called alignment. Like we want AI, which is aligned to our values. And at this time, it's very much about like, I would call it propositional alignment. We try to define rules to make them behave as we want, or let's say procedural alignment, which is what you do with your dog in a very simple model, like you dress it, you know, when it's a bad dog, you, you punish it. When it's a good dog, you, you, you give a cookie. And so this is how, how language models are reined in today. It's called reinforcement learning with human feedback. And it's very much like giving thumbs up and thumbs down on, on their answers. So they behave well. 
but the thing is that that's what John is advocating is that to reach to perspectival and participatory level, AI will have to be embodied. And these embodied things or beings will have to be brought up as we do with kids. So alignment will be embodied, procedural, perspectival, participatory. These things will have to learn to take care of themselves and learn to bind to us and to reality the way we do or the way a, a child does. And I, I, I like very much this program. It's very far from being majority. Most of the people in AI don't even know this. And there is also a pushback against this from the angle of, okay, so if we, do, we don't know how the AI behaves, we have this fear, it's uncertainty. One way to make sure they don't do damage is to not give them agency. So that, that's one of the, the points where we could stop AI actually doing something. But this ship has sailed, sort of like, you know, these AIs already have agency in terms of like going on the internet and do stuff. And they also have a lot of agency through us which is a complicated one. So they, they act through us. They, 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 they change what we think, like the social media AI. And so there is this, they, they already have agency on reality through us. But uh, to, to do, so, 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 so this is already there. And I agree with John is that um, if we put them into things, we have a better way to sort of, it's, it's more explicit. Their agency is more explicit if it's a little robot that works in your kitchen or the Wi-Fi antenna that, the, that deals with your, your connections. And so we have more chance actually to, to, to do the job of bringing them up. So that would be, be my program. And Technologically, it's a lot of challenge. So to GPT and, and most of the deep learning AI on images or, or text, they work very well because they have immense amount of data. Whereas these little things will have to learn on very small data like we do, you know. So in a certain sense, maybe like scientifically, it's more interesting also because the algorithms we have to discover are or invent, they are they will probably better models of us who learn on very small data than those algorithms that work on like a full internet. So these are these are my thoughts on like thoughts on like where is this going? I'm personally not that much afraid of the AI Armageddon. I think it's blown up, and we'll deal with it when you know one crisis after another but we'll deal with it when it happens I, it's this you know this notion of exponential takeoff seems very uh, it's it's a, it's a like it's a it's a certain theology actually hmm. and so i, I also when, when we talk about agency even there you know you any sophisticated form of agency paradoxically is less and less independent agency 
and it becomes more and more dependent agency. You know, so you might say the great artist um, who creates a new form, um, in one moment it looks like they have tremendous agency because they've created this whole new visual language, say. But of course, for the artist, they're constantly engaging with the world around them, they're deeply embedded in artistic tradition, they're experimenting, they're utterly dependent upon the world around them in order to exercise this agency. And I just wonder whether, again, as we get more sophisticated about notions like agency and so on, where the, the, the sense of interaction and dependence, um, notions like autonomy and so on, they start to become much more porous, actually. Again, this is a sort of spiritual paradox that the, the greatest freedom is actually that which is most fully participating with the world around. Um, and so, you know, in, in religious language, you have these seemingly paradoxical statements like service is perfect freedom. Um, and and I, I, you know, I sort of trust, I suppose, those spiritual or theological in, intuitions. Um, and that, um, so the idea that, uh, you know, intelligence and independent agency can kind of advance hand in hand i don't think it really works like that um the greatest intelligence is actually in a way the intelligence which is more and more in service of the wider intelligence mm -hmm. um, and so mm -hmm. its agency is um how how you know the, the great scientists they give themselves to their work um and so um although mm -hmm they're fully participating and feel, you know, fulfilled and satisfied in a way they lose themselves more and more in their work as well. And so their agency in an, in an autonomous independent sense goes down actually. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. Actually, I have a uh -huh. metaf metaphor. I call it the high functioning zombie, which is what's behind is, um, these, these AIs that are not connected to the world the way you, you, you describe it. They are very intelligent. So, so a zombie is disconnected to, from reality. It has a very narrow goal and it doesn't bind either to reality other than the food it has to eat, so very narrowly. And it doesn't bind to other zombies either or any, any other living being. And its body is also, its cells are not binding to each other either, right? They, it's falling apart and so the high functioning zombie for me is the zombie that hides its zombiness and this is a very much a myth like a modern myth that describes the society and it got ingrained into these projections of what ai will become the ai so we are afraid of ai becoming a high functioning zombie pursuing a narrow goal, but in being very intelligent and very good at that goal while not binding to reality. So it's sort of like this, this, uh, this artist that is at the same time very intelligent, but disconnected from reality, which doesn't exist. So evolution takes care of this, right? <laughs> because it yeah. cannot, cannot live like this, but somehow in the imagination of people who may be disconnected, they can imagine a, a technology becoming that and it's not something we can actually ex exclude we don't don't really have an example for this but i'm not saying i'm 100 percent sure that this would not happen but 
somehow being afraid of this is what it creates it you know it's the classical greek myth like you you it's it's a prophecy right the the reason i don't like it it's not because uh, i don't validate people who think this and they don't i don't validate their their fears it's because i think it's a prophecy that self creates itself if if we really if our real goal is to work against it it will create itself so i prefer like a positive picture and going towards a positive picture than a negative picture and go pushing it trying to push it against the future will 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 will, yeah, we'll will, will tell us if, if we're still around so even yeah. though yeah <laughs> Yeah. In the meantime, I, I just, you know, wish everybody worked on themselves like the old philosophers and scientists <laughs> to yeah. understand their yeah, own fears. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It was great. It was a little bit longer yeah, well, than we planned. Thank you but... for inviting me on and uh, for your interest and, and what you said, because, you know, this, it, this, this is good to work out conversations so yeah. yes absolutely absolutely i think uh, these, these conversations are very very important i'm trying to push my colleagues also to engage in such uh, such conversations okay uh, yeah yeah thank you very much well, uh, cheers yeah bye 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 <laughs>